Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience in the Watergate trial and tape searing. I'm also known for the pins that I wear, hashtag Jill's pins. And today I'm wearing actually two pins because our guest Fiona Hill deserves two pins. One is a American flag, which of course is part of the cover of her book, which I'm holding up, is got an American flag prominently displayed on it. And the other is a white rose, which is for her birthplace. the time of the War of the Roses between the Red Queen and the White Queen. And uh, so that's why I'm wearing two pins today. The problems facing Americans and the world are daunting and the solutions are scarce. How to rise and succeed in the 21st century in the face of these problems is what Fiona Hill, our guest today, writes about in her new book, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. It's a book that powerfully describes what Fiona has learned through her many high-powered experiences and makes clear why expanding opportunity is the only long-term hope for democracy. Those who have watched our show in the past know that Fiona is a friend of the podcast and are aware of her impressive background. If you missed Fiona's previous iGen Politics podcast appearances, here are some of her career highlights. She is now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, but from 2017 to 2019, she served as deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. She was a powerful witness during the first impeachment hearing. Her expertise is also the basis of several books, including one she co-authored, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. We are so thrilled to be joined by Fiona back on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, Fiona. Oh, thanks, Victor. It's great to be with you again. And we're looking forward to talking at length about your newest book, which is a combination of a memoir and a history book. And as the author of a memoir myself, I'm particularly interested in focusing in on the memoir side. Um, Of course, when we talked last March, uh, it was about Putin and your book about him And you, at the time, were working on this book. It wasn't published yet. And you said you were trying to find the right balance between history and memoir. And first of all, congratulations, because I think you got a very good balance between analysis and your own life and how history impacted you personally. Um, And I know how hard that is. I struggled with that. And... um, So how did you find that right balance in this book? Well, thanks, Jill. And, you know, remembering back to March, actually, that was a bit of a painful time when I was talking to you guys. I was quite happy to be talking about the book on Putin and Putin himself rather than the one I was working on because that was a period when I'd actually written the book initially thematically and um, using kind of memoir more as vignettes, um, you know, personal experiences to sort of illustrate some of the themes, and it really didn't work. It was ah. too confusing because there was there was no through line. All of so all of the material that's in the current book was there, but this is just like a little writer's one hundred and one section now that we have. <laughs> but apart from for me, you know, kind of my you know victim readers, including the editor, went, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, great material, but you know, where's the plot gone? And I thought, yeah, the storyline. 
because every book needs a beginning, a middle exactly. and an end, right? You know, kind of, and especially if you want people to read it and it's not just, um, you know, give me more of an academic book. And it's this was, you know, very much pitched at the general audience, everybody. And so I, I found myself going back to my own personal story and using that as the through line as the vehicle. So memoir becomes the, the, the plot in a way for um, part of the book. And that's how I balance things out because I, I can't say that I had it, you know, right away at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, the big themes that I was trying to get across of populism and deindustrialization and, you know, some of the complexities of being a woman in all of this, you know, my own, you know, sort of personal experiences. Um, you know, I, I had them all sort of divided divided out in a totally different way. So eventually I had to do it with, you know, kind of starting with my own, you know, kind of uh, birth onwards kind of thing, 1965, right. <laughs> you know, when I was born and then onwards um, to the, the kind of the present day to have a kind of chronology there. Well, it definitely so, um, worked. I, I, I became the vehicle for the rest of the right. book. <laughs> right. And, and that was the advice I got from my editor who said, your themes are good and you have to then tell personal stories that relate to those two themes. So exactly. if it relates to democracy and justice working, bipartisanship, it goes in. If it relates to the trial and justice, it goes in. If it relates to the hurdles you had to overcome as a woman, it goes in. Otherwise, all of this goes out. And that's yeah, how exactly. It, yeah, exactly. So I, I, let's just say there's a lot of material. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, uh, that got discarded, you know. So it's like literally the cutting room floor. But anyway, I think, you know, a lot of people who are, um, you know, listening in here might themselves be thinking, you know, one day about writing a book. And I think this is just, yeah. you know, the, it's, it's not... Um, you don't just sort of write and then you got to finish it in a way you have to often look at the material and uh, you know like anything right and then uh, think about how are you going to shape it and how are you going to get the the larger message across what is the point um, of everything and then how does everything that you're considering putting in the book carry the larger points and the themes across just as you said Jill as well. Okay so let's look at the cover of your book and for those of you who are <laughs> listening and watching on YouTube you can see the cover um, which features an American flag, which is one of my two pins today, um, hanging down from the window uh, of what looks like a mm, decaying structure, I would say. And uh, yeah, it looks like a storefront, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, but decaying. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not right. in good condition. And that kind of, I think, encapsulates some of the themes of your book. So I thought it might be good to start with um, you maybe describing those main themes of your book. Well, the title of the book, There Is Nothing For You Here, um, was something that my father said to me in 1984 when I was leaving um, the equivalent of high school in the UK. And there was a massive unemployment crisis in the UK overall, but for youth, a really serious unemployment crisis. So most kids who were leaving school had nothing immediately to go on to, which is often a familiar theme for people, right? I mean, still here in the United States, unless you've got college lined up. So, Victor, you know, if you're kind of <laughs> thinking back to, you know, high school and those dilemmas of what you were going to do, um, you know, uh, obviously going to college, you know, is one um, you know way of setting yourself on the next path. But for people who decide not to go to college, you know, is it going to be an apprenticeship? What kind of entry level job are you going to have? And, mm -hmm. you know, we know from the statistics that many people spend years you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, what they're going to do and jumping from one thing to the next. So that's, you know, fairly common. But in the north of England in the 1980s, 
you know, just the even the ability to jump from one jump to the next wasn't really there. And I decided that I wanted to try to go to college and I was applying and my father said to me basically one night as we were walking home from one of my many part-time jobs, this happened to be in a in a local pub, and um, he um, basically said, well, if you do go to college, you know, Fiona, you're going to have to then, you know, accept you're going to have to go somewhere else. He said, you know, there's nothing for you here, pet. Yeah, it's got a pet being a term of endearment in the northeast of England. We didn't put that one on the title of the book. So because, because, you know, if you go off to college, you're not going to be able to come back because, you know, you'll have these qualifications, but there won't be any jobs here. So you'll have to start thinking about where you go next and what you do next. And that was, you know, kind of a pretty wrenching discussion. But mm. that was kind of, you know, that's one of the themes of the book. It's um, of growing up in a place that was facing massive deindustrialization. My dad had been a coal miner. All the coal mines closed down. He didn't have anywhere with all to retrain. So he goes to work in the local hospital um, as a porter, an orderly, an ancillary worker. So right there at the very bottom rung of um, uh, the uh, labour force in the um, National Health Service. And he has no other prospects, you know, after that, because he can't get any other qualifications. There's no funding for retraining and his skills that he uh, developed on the job as a minor just didn't translate. And this happens in every particular setting where there's been massive rapid deindustrialization, the closing of shipyards, steelworks, uh, railway works, uh, coal mines, you know, you name it, big auto plants. We see that in the United States and in the UK. And I saw this in Russia when I you know, started uh, first traveling there and working there too. And people immediately get dislocated. And then the question is, you know, how do they uh, manage to move on from there? And if the place um, in, uh, in which they live is one of the places where there's nothing for you here, a place where all the industry's left and nothing new comes in, then all of those big questions are, how do you get ahead? Do you actually have to physically move and seek opportunities somewhere else? So the burn theme of the book, the through line, is really about opportunity. And, you know, through my own story, I talk about how this lack of opportunity in different settings, you know, my professional life moving from the UK to the Soviet Union, which then becomes Russia, and then to the United States, I see the same things happening. And then out of this, populist politics emerging, uh, with people feeding off the grievances uh, that are socioeconomic and cultural grievances because people feel they've lost their identity and their sense of self. And eventually uh, that feeds into the political system and uh, populist politicians who basically say, we're going to fix this, we're going to put things back, get your jobs back, help you find yourself again, kind of come into the mix. And I saw that in every place. But my own personal experience of finding opportunity is one of, um, of travel overseas. You know, I end up getting scholarships. I go to the university in St Andrews in Scotland first, but I get a scholarship to the Soviet Union, which opens the door to a scholarship to the United States. So education becomes the door to opportunity for me, even though that's not going to be necessarily the door for everyone else. And so by the end of the book, and the kind of theme is how do we find opportunity? And that's the subtitle of the book, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And I, of course, found opportunity in the United States, hence the American flag um, on on the front cover, and and so you've explained because I knew the phrase "there is nothing here for you" um, was from your father about the north of England, and the other part, finding opportunity in the twenty first century, seemed to be in conflict with that. But you've explained that wonderfully. It was a question both Victor and I had. For sure, yeah. And let's get into the um, the more personal aspect of your story. Um, maybe beginning with your childhood in the northeast of England in a cold town called Bishop Auckland. Um, can you describe for our audience 
that part of England and what that was like? Well, the, there is um, a real geographic divide in uh, the United Kingdom. And the north um, used to be, you know, in ancient times, a whole new kingdom. So if anybody watched um, HBO's Game of Thrones, <laughs> and there was this sort of like the division of the north with the Stark family, um, you know, this is just ripped straight out of British history because the north of uh, northern part of England was always a world apart from, um, you know, the rest of the country. It was an ancient kingdom of Northumbria, you know, the kind of there was different um, uh, political systems that had developed there over time. Uh, my part of the north of England, County Durham, was ruled for centuries by prince bishops. They were often, um, you know, the, the brothers of a king who were kind of uh, basically sent off to uh, become part of the church to put them out of the line of succession, <laughs> but given uh, you know basically the um, the mandate to you know govern part of uh, the the country in this case the north um, uh, against invasions as well and to have an army against invasions from the Scots or you know whoever else was kind of coming along. Um, so the north of England had this uh, storied history. It's also the outer rim of the Roman Empire. Um, you know, we had Hadrian's Wall just uh, further north of us. Uh, so that's kind of weird. So sort of 300 years, we were the furthest reach of the, um, the Roman Empire. But we also were the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. And so in, in the um, 1800s, in the 19th century, the, the region boomed. And it was coal mining. Um, the whole place was defined by coal, just like parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, near, for example. And related industries, steelworks, there was shipbuilding and then um, shipping um, in all the port cities in the region. The railways, it was kind of also the cradle of the railways, both industrial and freight railways and um, the passenger railway. And then it wasn't. <laughs> so there was this huge boom period uh, where the place was really on the maps, the maps of the entire world. Everybody knew um, about the north of England because it manufactured all of the goods. It's a bit like Silicon Valley, you know, today, you know, but very obviously different, um, different feel to it. And by the time I came along in the, in the 1960s, that industry was all tapering off. It was um, either no longer competitive in a, in a global sense or the coal was, you know, eventually being uh, mined out. And the world had moved on also. I mean, the economy uh, was modernising, uh, transitioning to the new knowledge economy with more emphasis on financial flows and, um, you know, software and, you know, the systems uh, development and um, the service sector. And the north of England just got completely left out of that because people's training and education system had all grown up around this big, heavy industry. And so, you know, when I um, was growing up there, it was a place that was uh, in the throes of a massive transition, the kind of transition, frankly, that we're going to have to go through now with moving to the green economy and, you know, kind of an economy with artificial intelligence, with self-driving pretty much everything, <laughs> including our houses won't need us. You know, we won't even be there to be there to like switch on a light or, you know, put something on the, on the, on the stove. Everything will be done without us. And I remember I was reading an article the other day about how humans are going to become just ha like household pets, you know, because the whole world is just going to be kind of trucking on without us. So that was even being there. An exaggeration, but I found that kind of amusing. <laughs> and, but in any case, that will be another major dislocation uh, from the workplace. And so that was my experience growing up in a, in a place in constant flux with people constantly losing their jobs and everything turned on its head from what it had been before. And I think that's what makes your book so relevant to us now is because 
that seems to be one of the dominant political themes here in America and, and what has led to Trump. But, but I want to go back to um, a part of your book that I particularly related to, which is the chapter about women's work. That's what you entitled it, was women's work. And I want to talk to you about at least two things there. One is what you describe as the gender pay gap, and the second is what you describe as the common pattern for working women and all the, again, the hurdles that women have encountered. So let's start with the gender pay gap and not the statistics, which have improved. I mean, when I graduated law school, it was 59 cents on the dollar for a woman. And it's way more than that now. We're in the 90s now. Uh, But it's not 100%. And so... and there's still discrimination of many sorts. You you describe what impact it had on you personally, and that's what I wanted to focus on, was not just the numbers, but how it made you feel like an outlier, and, and or as what I said in my book, I felt like an outsider. Um, and so can you talk about that part of it? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there are also other gaps in uh, wages that, um, you know, I mentioned in the book, but I don't talk about directly because, of course, I wanted to um, focus on my own authentic experiences. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I do give you know some of the statistics as I'm you know, sure you did too, Jill, <laughs> because there's also a racial uh, pay gap. So if you're a black woman or another minority woman or a woman with a disability, you've got even more of, of a problem. And then, you know, there's uh, just um, overall a lot of discrimination against, you know, kind of various groups on a wage basis but for women across the board um you know on average um according to all kinds of uh, statistics and research places like harvard business school women are making you know twenty thousand dollars a year less than men um and you know irrespective of you know where they are in the um uh, in the hierarchy of, of jobs you know kind of blue collar you know professional you know higher echelons and you know i um experienced it really early on in my career as soon as i got to the united states and i didn't expect it I know it sounds bizarre, but you know, coming from a working class background in the United Kingdom, there was more transparency in the wages. People posted for a job and that was going to be what the wage was. Now, admittedly, I was doing a lot of jobs that women were um, doing. I, when I was you know, trying to put myself through um, school, I did a lot of cleaning jobs. I was working in uh, the local hospital as a cleaner and there were mostly women, but the pay was really transparent. They said, you know, here's a job and I would have the exact pay of what you're going to be paid for by the hour. It was the same in um, bars and restaurants and the bars were barmen. I just got the same pay as they did. And so when I got to the United States and I'm you know, getting my first proper professional job, um, I just sort of I was going to be paid the same as everyone else. I didn't realise until I was put in charge of, as I moved on, the budgets, you know, as one of my administrative positions. And I looked at the budgets and was like, say what? (laughs) (laughs) Immediately seeing that, you know, despite my qualifications and, you know, the, the fact that I was actually at this point doing the job of two people, the guy who had been previously one of the uh, people before me in the, the job that I was doing had been paid more than the other woman who was working with and way more than me. And, you know, I immediately asked about this and I was told it was because of qualifications because at this point I hadn't finished my PhD and, you know, this and that and the other. But this just followed me throughout my whole career until a certain point. And I never made up the discrepancy. And at some points, as I describe in the book, it got worse. People would actually actively say, well, we're taking a risk on you because you're a woman. And I would collect these stories from other women. And actually, Jill, I mean, it's really admirable that you wrote about it as well and talked about it because, 
you know, a lot of women won't. They're embarrassed, you know, particularly older women, because they don't want people to know that they're made so much less than their male counterparts, especially as everyone knows they're working just as hard, often harder. And as you said, it's not just you feel like an outsider, but you feel like you're valued less. Yes. And, you know, there were people that I, you know, kind of saw as trailblazers ahead of me, you know, kind of women who were 20, 30 years old. And they'd said to me, look, when I was being interviewed for my job, people would say, well, what does your husband make? And why are you asking for so much if your husband's making this amount? Or other people saying, well, you're just going to go off and have children. You're not allowed to ask that and say that anymore. So, of course, we're not going to give you, um, you know, this pay. And I literally had had people rather crudely in interviews earlier saying, well, Hmm, yeah, well, are you getting married? Are you, are you planning on having children? Uh, you know, I'm not really so sure. And it's really only in 2009 when Lily Ledbetter, you know, the, the manager from the Alabama Tire Factory, finds out uh, that she has been grossly underpaid for her entire career because she's just about to retire, that things start to change because she actually sues her employer and eventually goes through the Supreme Court. Yeah. They throw it back, but eventually there's a bill in Congress in 2009 that basically gives women the right to, you know, not just call out this discrepancy, but do something about it. And after that, I think you and I and many others do start to see things changing somewhat because there's then a reference point. But that, um, you know, constant thing of saying, well, we're taking a bit of a risk on you because you're a woman for a variety of, you're not approved, either you're not a proven commodity, the qualifications, or we're just, you know, not sure whether we can rely on you or, you know, you're just not a man. You know, yeah. and you know, kind of people. There was even discrimination built into the human resources department. Of other women would basically, you know, kind of acquiesce to a man yes. asking for a salary. But when a woman came along and did it, they were like, well, I don't know about that. The experiences that you and I had are both very similar. But I retired in two thousand and eight, or at least theoretically retired yeah, so you were in two thousand. So, so you I had missed the whole experience. Right when I was interviewing for jobs, things that were illegal like asking about what your husband did, weren't illegal. And I was asked all those questions about how many children, what kind of birth control do you use? Uh, I can't even begin to tell you all the things. I was told that they couldn't hire me because I was a woman and everybody else in the job was a man and it required travel and they couldn't possibly let me travel with a man. So yeah, I, I mean, I completely get it. And I think one of the points you make that I just want to stress is how this accumulates. Because once you start out lower than the men, you go to the next job and they can pay you less because if they give you a 10% raise, it's a raise. But it's 10% from a base that you shouldn't have been at. And it can accumulate into hundreds of thousands of dollars over a career. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I at one point figured out that I was in arrears, so to speak, of $500,000. Right, and exactly. And yeah. the point that I make in the book is it's, you know, kind of, you know, I'm very fortunate, you know, and how I've progressed through life. But if I was a single mother and say I was a black single mother yeah. or any minority single mother, a disabled single mother, anybody who's going to have even more discrimination there, that gets passed on to the next generation, you know, to, to my family. Yeah. Because, you know, women uh, tend to be the head of households in single-parent families, and then women are already discriminated against. So all of their kids are living with that kind of um, discrepancy yeah. because, you know, they're already not getting off to the same start as everyone else. And I also wanted to put it out there in the book for younger people, you know, Victor, like you and your colleagues, so you'd be more attuned to this because it's not just for women, it's for anybody else who might be discriminated against in, in, their, in their wages to know that this happens. And the only way to fix this is for people to work together in, in, in tandem. 
and to be open and transparent and to push the places that they work to be open and transparent about um, salaries. Some places really are. And as you said, things have really changed. And yeah. all the places that I experienced that discrepancy earlier, they've changed a lot in the last um, you know, 10 years. But we've just got to keep pushing for that. Right. But I, And I have to say that the discrimination I faced didn't go to wages. Uh, when I started, law firms offered all associates the same wage. Um, now, as you progressed, it might get differential, but at least at the starting point, you were equal. Right. And the same was true in government where there's GS grading and everybody exactly. in that grade gets the same. So I started as an 11 and all 11s make, made the same salary. Um, and I, I think what's interesting, though, is you point to the Lilly Ledbetter Act in 2009 and when we went to see a movie called Made in Dagenham. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Um, yeah. We walked out and my husband said, I can't believe that that was going on in England in 1968. And I said, yeah. honey, do you know what's going on in America? The first thing, the first official act of President Obama was to sign the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which gave a right for people to sue going retroactively. And he had no idea that we were 40 years behind or 30 years behind England on this. So I, I just want to end on this segment with um, turning to page 150, I'm sorry, 144 of, of your book. Um, I don't know if you, do you have the book in front of you? You could read it or if you um, don't. I've got it behind me. My okay. purpose is maybe put it behind me. Okay. Then I'll have to put my glasses on. Because okay, that's okay. <laughs> Let me try to find it here. Uh, 144. The oh. first full paragraph, I think, sort of summarizes to me the overall problem we're talking about in terms of discrimination no, I'll, against I'll, I'll women. I've my glasses on for this, you know, as okay. you get older, you need, you need extra money uh, either, the, either that or you need <laughs> contact lenses <laughs> that are yeah, monovision, right? So the part All that right, says... you want me to read this? Yeah, these experiences were part... Okay, yeah. So these experiences were a part of a common pattern for working women... Men get more pay because they ask. Men are viewed as strong when they ask for money, women appearing grasping or greedy. Men always seem to have more leverage in a negotiation than women. Employers presume men will walk away if they don't get what they want. They have more options, uh, they have more job options because they're men. Women always fear that they have fewer options and there will be untoward consequences. Somehow walking away from a bad pay offer or calling out a discrepancy will be held against them they will earn a reputation for being difficult. As was the case for me, hiring managers push women to take what's offered and ask for a pay raise once they have proved themselves on the job. Women are a risk. Men are a proven quantity. The cumulative opportunity and monetary cost of all this bias against women, individually and collectively, is extremely high. Yeah, I mean, I had all of those fears, those concerns. You know, I, I still find it, honestly... My husband's always going on at me about it. I still find it hard asking for money. <laughs> okay, so we have to get you trained in how to negotiate. Uh, yeah, I know, but this is the thing. I remember once, um, you know, in um, uh, hearing about a, a colleague who was going for kind of a big new job with a, a private corporation. They hired a lawyer, and I thought, what? Yeah, exactly. And now I think, of course. <laughs> She had to hire a lawyer because she didn't know, you know, whether she was going to be basically getting the same 
compensation. So, you know, it's all been a learning curve for me as well. You know, I'm in my 50s, you know, well and truly now, and I'm still learning, you know, about these kinds of things. But I do think that, you know, for more vulnerable women who are the heads of households, looking after their kids, it's really important as a society that we understand this because it has multi-generational impacts in a very negative way. And as I said, the cumulative cost is huge. Definitely. I think it's something that you said we need to all address, men and women working together to address this um, problem. I want to turn to perhaps a different subject, and that is um, the rise of authoritarianism. Um, Your book suggests that the authoritarian rise of Putin foreshadowed um, the rise of would-be authoritarians like Nigel Farage in England and Donald Trump um, here in the U.S., Um, is this just a coincidence or is there something disturbingly similar between uh, the three countries and those leaders? Well, I think there's a moment. I mean, I could have actually um, you know, put this in a much larger context, right? Because we seem to be in that popular, this populist moment. Uh, there's uh, President Erdogan of, uh, of Turkey, you know, for example. There's Prime Minister Orban in Hungary. There is, um, he's not the, the prime minister or the president in uh, Poland, but there's uh, Mr. Kaczynski, who is the head of uh, the ruling party in Poland, who has a huge um, popular and populist influence from uh, behind the scenes. And, you know, where there's Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, there's Modi in, in India. That kind of style of governance has got resonance for this moment. And I think it's because we're in such a complex period in, uh, in, in global history, we have a, a crush of really difficult crises on our hands, not just the pandemic, because this preceded it, and climate change. But we are in one of those other major transitions, right, from one um, uh, economic system to another with the advent of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, the changes, you know, the knowledge economy. It's already, you know, taking uh, shape even even further um, we're uh, facing uh, the, the green revolution, which is uh, we're all, we're going to have to contemplate because of, of climate change and massive socioeconomic dislocation is is a feature in pretty much every society at the moment. Plus massive demographic change, and although you don't see that quite so much in Russia, although there's been a lot of migration into Russia from Central Asia and the former um, Soviet republics, and you know from some other countries as well, we in the United States were at a tipping point. You know, as we're as we're all aware, you know, depending on um, the statistics, by twenty forty five, the United States is going to be majority minority. We're becoming much more diverse. Um, you know, your generation, Victor, is the most diverse in American history. In the UK, that's already happened in places like London, where there's been just there's a massive flip of uh, the population. I mean, the, the place where I grew up in is still like ninety eight percent white, but you know that's mm. not uh, that's not that's not London, for example, is one of the most you know multi ethnic, multicultural, diverse cities on the planet, like New York and Los Angeles, and you know many others. And so, you know, a lot of people are having a hard time adjusting with to the fast pace of change. So they're looking for somebody to sort of slow it down a bit for them. Sometimes even sort of take it back a bit, or somebody just to tell them that they can kind of you know keep. Uh, them all in the position that they've uh, grown accustomed to because an awful lot of people are going oh you know this is too fast for me I don't like this change I don't like where this is all heading and if someone steps in and says all right I've got it all under control I'm going to put it all back I'm going to fix all of the problems that we have that's very appealing particularly if they're coming up with you know very straightforward quick time sort of solutions for these complex problems because, you know, we all know that in public policy, um, you know, uh, people like myself from the Brookings Institute, we come up with these you know, big long programs and sort of policy briefs on how to fix things. It's so much easier and just say, we just need to do this. 
And we just need to do that. You know, President Trump said, we've got a problem with immigration, build a wall. You know, so this is kind of the, the straightforward uh, explanation or solution for, you know, for the problem. And people find that appealing. You know, particularly if somebody said, look, and I understand that you feel that you've lost your position, you've lost your status, you've lost your job, you've lost all of this, loss, loss, loss. I can give it back to you again. I can make you whole. So let's perhaps focus on the rise of Trump. Your book focuses not so much on Trump himself, but instead on the conditions that fed his rise to presidency. Um, What are the factors you think led Trump to become president in 2016? Well, I mean, one of the factors that everybody was focused on was, of course, the Russian intervention in uh, the uh, 2016 election. And I tried to kind of make it clear in in the book that although the Russians most certainly interfered and um, they uh, messed around and they no doubt had an impact on um, helping to shape some people's opinion, the factors that uh, produced uh, Trump you know, were were not related to you know Russian operatives masquerading as Americans on the internet because all they were doing was basically picking up on the divisions and just trying to stoke further discord, pouring fuel on ready on ready a fire that was burning. So, I mean, the the factors are this long period of deindustrialization that I talked about and places getting left behind in the United States, not just in. Um, uh, in the United Kingdom. So there are many places in the United States very similar to the northeast of England that lost the mainstays of their economy, be it um, steelworks um, or um, coal mines. I mean, you think about you know what we call the Rust Belt. It wasn't always called the Rust Belt. That was the heartland of American manufacturing. You know, we, we talk about the Rust Belt now as if it was always, you know, filled with rusty factories. You know, back in the day, particularly after World War II up until, you know, Jill, what, the 60s and 70s and sometimes in the case of the 80s, these were some of the most vibrant, you know, productive cities in, in America, the, the places that were, you know, driving the economy. Detroit, you know, Flint, Michigan, you know, Dearborn, uh, you know, Michigan, and many of the great big uh, places at Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I mean, these were the the the, the heartland the, and the 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 lungs, you know, they used to kind of call it of the uh, of America with all the the, the big um, manufacturing uh, plants. And so, when um, all the jobs go away in uh, places like that, um, and nothing comes back, you get kind of the grievance. We've also seen, unfortunately, particularly since the. Um, global uh, financial crisis 2008-2009, an increase in really you know terrible health outcomes for people. So Sir Angus Dayton um, from uh, Princeton University and his wife Anne Case have done this research on the deaths of despair, you know, showing um, the um, increase in um, poor health and mortality rates, opioid addiction, you know, depression, you know, you name it, in the old industrial heartlands where people have lost their jobs and as a result of it have lost their identity. And that and many other factors, our partisan politics, the degeneration of our political parties, the emergence of different factions and groups, the sort of polarisation on cultural and, you know, many other issues, this demographic change that I was talking about earlier, all fed in to an environment of divisiveness and dislocation for many people. And that is the kind of environment that Donald Trump emerged um, out of. He's a symptom, you know, not a cause of all of it. We have to remember that he was one of 17 candidates in the primaries for the Republican Party. And all of those candidates, they couldn't find the right formula to connect with people. They kind of knocked themselves out of contention. And Trump, um, having been a reality reality TV 
um, showman and, you know, somebody who understood the working class because he um, employed many of them in his construction, family construction companies, you know, across the United States, especially in Brooklyn and um, the Queens, New York, and, you know, you name it, the, you know, places that were in transition in New York itself. He just kind of understood, you know, better than anyone really what was going on and how to talk to people and how to, you know, basically pick up on the things that were making them angry and frustrated and to channel it. I mean, he really tapped into those grievances and that anger and frustration, like you said. And um, I'm wondering what you think are some of the warnings that the 2016 election should have shown about the state of the country. Well, look, I think if we hadn't been also obsessed about Putin and what the um, the Russian security services might have done, we might have already seen all of the warning signs because there were many, right? Um, there were, we, we saw all of this. And in fact, you know, kind of President Obama himself, um, his predecessor, had seen this too. And President Obama came um, into office on the back of that very different message of hope and change, not a message of American carnage and, you know, how everything is really dreadful and I've got to kind of protect you. But he was addressing the exact same issues. Um, you know, and unfortunately, over the course of, you know, the eight years that he was in office, many of the um, issues, um, you know, remained untackled. He did um, do a, you know, go a long way to try to address some of the social issues with Obamacare. Of course, there was a back- massive backlash against that, but trying to deal with the health um, outcomes that were so um, negative in uh, the United States. I mean, in a, uh, by being the first black president, his election in itself was an attempt to try to address this demographic change and the racial divisions, you know, but of course he was also walking in eggshells the whole time. And, you know, we didn't have that big, you know, debate about race that we've actually had since George Floyd's death, for example. There were, you know, it's also the timing because of, you know, the forever wars. I mean, the United States by this point had got itself into two major conflicts in Afghanistan and, um, and Iraq, and I don't really talk about this in the book, but the real legacy of two of nine uh, eleven, and the way that that shaped uh, the United States, and the the pressures and the tensions that that helped create, are also a part of that. And President Obama wasn't able to disentangle, you know, from that. So by the time we get to the election of twenty sixteen, there's still a lot of really unfinished business. And then the different tone comes in because certainly President Obama's goal was to try to reconcile was, you know, to try to bring people together. Donald Trump, you know, um, President Trump saw that division was his kind of ticket, dividing people up, uh, not trying to reconcile, do the exact opposite, was his ticket to the to the presidency. And so he, he doubled down on it. So, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're in a kind of a place where the pendulum swung one way and then, you know, swung in the other direction. And this is the challenge for all of us now is trying to figure, you know, how do we move forward from here? How do we address all of these um, divisions, the problems that we saw in 2016, but we got diverted by, look over here at Vladimir Putin. And yet, you know, the, the security service in Russia saw these very clearly. And that's what they were playing with. They were exploiting it. So our divisions are and, st- and, and will be a national security challenge for us. They're a real risk. So it seems like you were quite concerned about um, Trump in 2016. Did you have any concerns about being in the administration or what did you try to do when you got asked um, to serve in the administration? Well, my focus was really in the administration on Russia. But, you know, it was inescapable that we had domestic problems. But I'd been very much laser focused on what could we do about dealing with Russia, knowing what I did about Putin and all of the issues that we're going to have to deal with. And, you know, of course, I discovered... Um, over the course of my time there, that the domestic and foreign policy were inextricably linked. 
And of course, the kicker moment for that becomes the one that we all see, you know, during the first impeachment trial, which is when Trump tried to engage with Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to get him to jump into American politics, yeah. invited in this case, unlike the Russians in 2016, you know, to basically open up investigations of Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden, you know, to uh, basically cast questions on his candidacy uh, for um, the, the, the presidency during the uh, 2020 election. And that's the kind of a moment where I, like everybody else, really saw that you can't extricate the domestic from the foreign policy. And all the time that I was there, there were all these efforts going on to privatise our foreign policy and national security policy. So my big qualms are really in that period as I'm coming out about it was obvious that you couldn't do anything about national security policy as I'd assumed you could without really addressing the domestic front. I mean, I got a you know pretty cold, harsh, rude awakening on that one. That you know, kind of domestic and uh, foreign policy are intertwined. Of course, I'd been writing about that in the Russian case <laughs> for for years, and then I see that it's, the, it's exactly the case in the United States because our domestic politics have become so messy. You know that um, all of the foreign policy dimensions are now not separate; they're all intertwined. Mm-hmm. So you focused on addressing Russia and. In so doing, you had to interact with Trump many times. And you describe many moments in which you had to interact with Trump. There's one striking moment in your book um, when you describe wearing sneakers as you entered the West Wing. Um, before entering the Oval Office, General uh, McMaster told you to make sure that you were, your feet were out of the president's sight line. Can you talk more about that moment and why then you decided to always store a pair of sneakers or, I guess, shoes in your office, not sneakers? Well, this is, um, you know, hopefully, Victor, one of these moments that you'll, you know, kind of never have to experience. But Jill might have been there before, you know, when you're an older, you know, working mother. And, you know, in my case, I'd take the metro to um, uh, because I, I live at such a distance that it was a wash between driving and the metro. And I'd, you know, rather take my chance on the metro than just get stuck in traffic and, you know, deal with road rage and everything else. <laughs> And, you know, kind of worry about actually getting there. So I um, would um, wear sneakers to go down to the metro. This was my first morning on the job and my daughter had been ill all night. And so I was so confused, befuddled, no sleep, totally out of it in the morning. I thought I was just going to an orientation session. I put on my sneakers. I forgot my shoes. And I literally sprinted down to the metro, got on the metro, made it into the orientation set a, set, um, session in time. And sort of sitting there going, you know, God, thank God. And next thing, I'm being called out to go to the Oval Office to help brief the president on um, a terrorist attack in the St. Petersburg metro that I've heard nothing about because I've been dealing with a sick child. I've been on the metro. I've no idea. And I'm supposed to accompany um, basically um, the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, and I haven't got my shoes. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, really? I'm going to go to the Oval Office first day on the job in my sneakers. So I tried to borrow a pair of shoes, but there's no one with feet as big as me. So it's, I'm the ugly stepsister in Cinderella. can't find a pair of shoes to fit me. So I have to go there and stuff my feet, as um, General McMaster said, under the chair, sitting in front of the Resolute desk, you know, right in front of me. The president didn't even look up at me, didn't care who I was anyway. I said my little spiel that I'd figured out what to say about the St. Petersburg uh, Metro. He calls Putin. He finishes calling Putin to say, sorry, it's a condolence call. And then Ivanka Trump walks in and she's this vision in white lacy flowing dress and possibly high heels. I think she looks like she's going off to a gala. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, what's she doing here? First of all, I think to myself, then I realize, oh, yeah, hey, she's an advisor, <laughs> president, his daughter. And she's just dressed up, as we'd said, to the nines. I mean, it was just it felt like prom night or something. And I was really taken aback. And then she sits down next to me. And she takes the first thing she sees is my great big black sneakers. 
So I am totally busted. So as soon as I've gone after, you know, I've got back to the orientation session, finished that out, I run out to the nearest shoe store and buy a pair of shoes that fit me that I can wear on every occasion. I put them under the desk in a box just so that I've always got them. So I'm not going to be caught out again. And they did not have impossibly high heels on them. They were, you know, kind of these sort of, they had a heel, <laughs> but they were kind of something that was interchangeable. But Jill, I'm sure you've been there, done that as well. Oh, you brought up in my mind a horrible experience where I flew to Spain and had packed my heels. I flew in my gym shoes. But when I took them out, I had two left shoes that looked a lot alike, yes. but they weren't a pair. And I went to buy a pair. I was in Spain. What better place? And there are no shoes big enough for me in Spain. Luckily, because right, everyone's oh, wow. pretty petite in Europe. Exactly. Small feet. There's something weird about it. <laughs> I, it was horrible. It was just the worst oh, thing. But gosh. I luckily did find another Motorola woman who was at the same meeting who actually had two pairs of shoes and they were my size. So I saved myself in that situation. But anyway, back to the Trump administration. Um, Would you describe as dysfunctional? And I think all of us have seen, you know, examples of that, but I'd love, love to hear some of your highlights of, of that. Um, and, and not just of the dysfunction of Trump, but the dysfunction, as you describe it, of the whole administration, which went beyond just the White House. Yeah, well, unfortunately, this was, um, you know, administration fighting with itself because Trump had come into government without a team. I mean, he had a team and a very small team, his family team, um, people who'd worked with him in uh, his Trump business empire and his literal family members and a few people who'd been on his campaign because it, it was a, you know, a, a, a really um, um, small campaign team. Um, with you know no frills attached and you know, essentially kind of little like a war room around him, and so he had to rely on the uh, Republican Party, uh, the you know, Republican National Committee to mm-hmm. staff um, people for um, a lot of the positions, and you know kind of people to bring others in that they might have served with before. That's how I ended up coming in. I was approached by Katie McFarland, who had been named as the Deputy National Security Advisor, and General Flynn, who was the First um, national security advisor, very short-lived. Who, um, in the case of General Flynn, worked with me when I'd been at the uh, National Intelligence Council. He'd been my counterpart in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Office. It was Admiral Mullen at the time, and Katie McFarland had had a Fox News show and invited me on several times to speak about Vladimir Putin and the books that I'd written. And I'd met her through the Council on Foreign Relations, and so you know, I, I got this basically call. Uh, early on asking for some advice and then, you know, would I consider, you know, a bit of a surprise a bit later, um, coming on board. And I also knew then several other people who had been brought on from the DNI or the military who I'd worked with and, uh, you know, others from around the government. And all of us who weren't connected to the president through the campaign or through his family and his other business were um, basically viewed with great suspicion. And that's where the dysfunction came from right away. Because Trump was not part of the Republican Party. He wasn't part of the Republican Party apparatus for certain. But he just kind of hijacked the party on his way to the presidency. As I you know, said before, he was one of 17 candidates. He was the wild card. Nobody expected him, you know, to, to get elected. He wasn't a, a, a card-carrying Republican until, you know, rather relatively recently. At one point, he'd even be registered as a Democrat. And he certainly had no previous government um, experience, mm. which some people thought was his major selling point, actually, 
Uh, you know, and, and indeed, um, you know, uh, previously Barack Obama had uh, been um, elected as president very quickly after, you know, just a very short period as being a, you know, sort of junior senator, you know, from Illinois. And so, you know, here was uh, Trump just sort of catapulted into the Oval Office. He thought he could run the whole place like he ran his family business. And that's really at the heart of it. And all of the stories really kind of come from there because he also had no um, sense of how the government worked. He didn't see the need for all of the many of the departments and agencies for sure. Certainly not for the National Security Council. He didn't really know what we all did. And his view was that information should flow down from him, not up. And eventually, anybody who came to work for him, be it Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of uh, ExxonMobil, uh, General McMaster, you know, kind of a great war hero, uh, General Kelly, you know, also, you know, kind of a, a general, very famous, who becomes his um, chief of staff eventually, General Mattis, who becomes the Secretary of Defense. You know, all of the, these people, he just sees them literally as that secretaries, particularly as the title of Secretary of Defense, Secretary right. of State. He kind of, you know, tends to see them all as staff. And women, you know, um, uh, more than anything, unless it was Ivanka, and, you know, a handful of women that he knew from his time um, working, you know, with his own business enterprise or um, in, on his campaign, like Kellyanne Conway had run his campaign, you were just, you know, just non-entities, non-players. He just didn't know what on earth you were doing there. So, you know, for someone like me, I'm just this middle-aged woman who may or may not know something about Russia. Even, you know, uh, Secretary Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson, gets dismissed because by now he's the staff. And, you know, that was kind of where all the dysfunction, the chaos came from. And that's how it played out across the rest of the government because everybody was um, under suspicion. He didn't see, he wanted to almost dismantle the state. He didn't see the point of it. He wanted to run everything out of his own private circle in the White House and, you know, took much more news, um, uh, rather information and advice from Fox News. Uh, and, you know, many people would say, we, we, you know, we're hearing about this in some of the inquiry into January 6th that people felt they had to get on television, you know, to get the president to, you know, call back, you know, the protesters and the mob, you know, who had assaulted the, the, the Capitol building because they couldn't get his attention in real time. He was so focused all the time on the TV and what people were saying on the TV. But once they then came into work from him and there was a whole parade of them, they all soured on him or he soured on them. And then, you know, that was that. They were in and out very quickly. An interesting perspective, but one, one other comment you had about him was that he had autocrat envy, and it, that may stem from his just desire to run things completely himself, but can you talk more about that and explain what you meant by autocrat envy? I, th- I think it's also his perception of how power works, because you, when we all heard him say in the run-up to the presidential election and then once he secured the president, he thought that the president the executive, you know, from the executive branch was the person who held all the power. Mm. So he certainly didn't believe in checks and balances. And again, it, it could well lead back to the time, you know, of him being not the CEO, you know, has been recruited of a of a major company, but the, the head of a family firm that's been sort of set up, you know, kind of uh, from the beginning and that he sort of stepped into. I mean, he did not, you know, kind of see the executive branch as existing. And so his kind of vision of the presidency and somebody who's being a president, somebody who's strong and powerful, keeps using those words, strong and powerful, and who has no checks and balances and essentially rules or governs as he pleases. And so he starts to see people like Putin um, in Russia, Orban in um, Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, who actually has a lot of checks and balances on him, actually, you know, more, more so than people might think. And then she in China, it's not 
Xi with the Communist Party and the big Chinese system, but she is the individual, the president who's pushed through term limits and looks like he's staying on in power too, as the kind of epitome of the kind of leader that he thought he should be and he certainly wanted to be. And he said this. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he says this to Woodward on the tips, essentially saying that, you know, he's more of affinity with the stronger guys rather than the others who are in these much messier democratic systems and don't have that kind of power. He talks about how he'd like to be that. And, you know, he, he said that, you know, very openly in a place when I heard as well, he would quip, you know, I wish I had the same situation like this. Or in press conferences, he would talk about wanting people to sit up and pay attention uh, to him and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just praise him all the time. We saw in his uh, cabinet meetings where he'd go around the table yes. expecting everyone to praise him, yeah. making it very clear that they were, you know, subservient to him. It's- so, I mean, I observed this, you know, every time that I was in his presence, And also you just pick up on it from what everybody else is saying as well. It was very clear that, again, that his autocrat envy stemmed from what he thought the American presidency should be. If it was the leader of the free world, the most important position in the world, um, you know, in his his view, then it ought to have that power that would come with it. The Queen of England was another um, of his autocrats, although we all know that she's not an autocrat, she's a constitutional monarch doesn't have a lot of authority and power. But in his view, she has all of the celebrity trappings that he also thought um, an autocrat should have. Interesting, very interesting. Um, Let's jump ahead to a moment that brought you into the public spotlight, and that is uh, Trump's first impeachment hearing. And if you could just quickly describe to our audience, um, what led you to speak out against Trump? at that time? And was it a difficult decision for you? Well, look, I'd gone in to do public service. Uh, I'd gone in, you know, really concerned about what the Russians had been doing. And I remained that throughout the whole time. But the way that they were exploiting, you know, so many of our political divisions, the polarization, the partisan infighting, and all of these vulnerabilities that we'd developed. But I also, you know, most firmly believed in, um, congressional oversight and the checks and balances in the system, representational democracy. And Congress, you know, has the, the, the right to hold the executive branch, the president, into account. And I'd taken an oath to the Constitution, not an oath to one guy. Um, and although, you know, this is with the Trump administration, it's supposed to be an administration, you know, and you know, people have to have responsibility for the things that they've done and be held to um, account for things that they've done. And so when I was subpoenaed, there was no question that I was going to go and do some, uh, do something, and you know, to basically step up, and to um, you know, basically respond to the questions that the uh, Congress wanted to pose to me. I mean, I, I I didn't see it as a kind of a choice there, and although you know there was efforts on the part of the um, the White House to you know try to stop um, the um, me and others from testifying, especially those who were still in their jobs. You know, I, I thought there was no question that I had to do it. If only I didn't more. know what they were going to ask me, honestly, because I mean, I had left in the week before, or the week before this infamous phone call. But of course, Ukraine had been part of my responsibility, and I knew by that point when I'd left that there were a lot of problems, and I had myself been reporting up things that I had seen. But I didn't know until I saw the transcript from the call that Trump himself had been directing everything. I'd kind of thought that, you know, other people like, you know, Rudy Giuliani and these other, you know, cast of characters, you know, were more, you know, trying, for example, to get rid of our wonderful ambassador to Ukraine, Masha Ivanovich, because she was in the way of their own business and other interests. And, you know, they were trying to sell. It seemed very clear 
President Trump a bag of goods about, you know, kind of conspiracy theories in Ukraine. And I wasn't really sure, though, where the direction was coming from. But that phone call made it made it 100% clear that it was Trump, that he was, you know, kind of fully cognizant of everything that was going on and was, you know, well and truly directing this as well. I, I only wish that there were more members of the Trump administration that felt the way you did and had come forward and testified or that would now come forward. Well, there were a lot forward. of other people who testified, though. Yes. I mean, I was not the only one. And there were a lot of people behind closed doors as well. There was a lot of people stepped up and a lot of people had reported it up the chain already. So there was a preponderance of, you know, people yes. coming forward. But there were people who decided not to, which is very much the case. Exactly. And there's even more so now. But um, Victor, I, I know you wanted to talk about something at the end of the book. Yeah. So so near the end of the book, you provide some deep analysis of President Trump's coup attempt. Um, you wrote that the coup attempt mirrored autocrats like Emperor Napoleon III and Nicolas Maduro. Um, talk about that a little bit more. And looking back on the Trump administration and his 2016 campaign, how predictable do you think January 6th was? Well, I think the specifics of January 6th weren't necessarily predictable, right? I mean, we didn't know that Trump would have a rally um, on the ellipse and then, you know, basically get everybody all revved up to go and storm the um, <laughs> the Capitol building. But, I mean, there was an awful lot of effort being um, made to overturn the election and to, um, uh, you know, basically halt uh, the transfer of power by legal means. I mean, there were so many uh, court cases that had been... Um, instituted and uh, calls for uh, electoral recounts. But what we, you know, we'd seen in terms, so so I think it was entirely predictable that he was messing with the election and um, messing with, um, you know, the, the electoral outcome. Because, you know, it starts well before the, the phone call with um, looking around for kind of ways of trying to make sure that Joe Biden um, doesn't get any traction as a candidate mm-hmm. or whoever else is running against him. Then after the impeachment trial, um, when he hasn't um, really held to account, but he's definitely censored, at least, you know, publicly in some way, he starts to double down. And he starts to talk down the election. And, you know, we have a situation where colleagues that I'd worked with, like uh, Chris Krebs from the Department of Homeland Security, who is in charge of um, this agency that's supposed to be pushing back against the Russians and other external efforts to intervene in our election, finds himself talking out against our president and trying to assure American voters that the actual, you know, electoral process is pretty secure. And it's not, you know, he's, he's worrying not so much that um, um, Donald, um, uh, well, he's not worrying that um, Vladimir Putin's going to steal, you know, your um, your mail ballot and the <laughs> and the um, uh, and, and the mail van, but that Donald Trump is going to somehow, you know, find ways to, you know, um, uh, basically diminish. Um, uh, Postal votes, for example. So, you know, you get this ridiculous situation where we've been worried about one thing and we're actually seeing our own president be the biggest threat to the um, successful outcome of the election, denying uh, that, you know, the elections are free and fair. And the American uh, election system has been the gold standard for decades around the world. We have been the elections that everybody else has tried to emulate, certainly not now. But, I mean, he basically opens the floodgates for calling uh, the mm-hmm. elections falsified even before they've taken place. And we're seeing that, you know, all happening now. So the fact that Donald Trump was trying to impede the elections and then for for sure when he lost the election in both the Electoral College and the um, the popular vote, and the popular vote by a huge margin, much, um, you know, more uh, than he had, um, you know, lost in 2016, although, you know, ironically, he gets 11 million more votes than he got in 2016. You know, 16. 
he immediately tries to basically say that the election was stolen, so the whole stop the steal movement starts. And so this idea of a coup and, a, and a, basically an effort to prevent the transfer of executive power, a self-coup, because he's already in office, has a very long tail to it. It's happening in um, you know, basically full view of everyone. It becomes normalised. He's, he's, he, there's nothing clandestine about it. It's not sudden. It's just happening the entire time, which is why I think most people are kind of rubbing their eyes and, you know, they're disbelieving this. Because, you know, when you think of a coup, you think of a sudden military uprising. Um, you know, we just had one in Sudan where the prime minister was um, uh, taken um, uh, into um, uh, custody by the military, uh, a full-blown military coup. That's not what we had. But, um, you know, President Trump certainly tries to whip up militias at different points. He does try to kind of influence uh, the armed military to... Uh, do things in his support. And we're, it's still happening. I mean, we're, we're having the whole events of what happened on January 6th, um, questions, uh, efforts to dismiss the committee that's uh, trying to investigate it, more efforts to uh, cast questions about elections. Um, we're, we're basically in a massive constitutional crisis ongoing. I mean, given that fact that, you know, voter restriction and suppression laws are being passed around the country and um, Republicans continue to obstruct um, the January 6th committee and refuse to get to the bottom of it, um, how likely do you think another coup attempt is? Well, as I said, we're still seeing it because, you know, we're we're seeing the ground being prepared for a challenge to um, an outcome of the 2024 election and maybe the 2022 midterms where if votes don't quite come down, you know, where um, uh, Trump and people around him are expecting that they're going to challenge it. I mean, it's going to be by not legal means, but we've seen legal coups happen before <laughs> in other countries. In Turkey, for example, um, you know, where, you know, the court system and, you know, the judiciary are generally, you know, used, for example. Um, you know, we, um, we're in this. This is, this is happening. This is unfolding. And if we look around the world, we can see many other examples where if it was happening in an allied country, uh, we would be um, ready to at least stage some kind of intervention in the sense of, hey, we're your friends, we're really worried about what's happening here. You know, you you need to get a grip. Not a military intervention, but just basically, you know, uh, we would be doing this. If this was happening in the UK or Italy or, you know, uh, somewhere else, Germany, we'd be really concerned and trying to figure out what we could do to mediate. It it seems to me what you're describing is a possible destruction of our democracy uh, by these means. And you mentioned Germany, and I'm sorry, but that was another place where the government was changed through legal means, um, and everybody there said, it can't happen here, we don't have to worry. Absolutely. And uh, do you think we're at a stage where we should be calling out the troops, not the, I don't mean military troops, I'm talking about citizens, that citizens who yes, care. Yes, yes, to kind of get everybody mobilized. Yeah, you've yes. got to be careful about the language that you yes. use, uh, yes. you know, given yeah. the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, look, I also liken it to 1990s Russia or, you know, kind yeah. of Russia in um, other, other periods as well, where we've seen uh, real setbacks uh, to democracy. Um, and, you know, kind of for a lot of people, people feel it's illegitimate somehow to raise 1930s Germany because of what happened later with the Holocaust and, you know, no evidence of a final solution or the, the, some right. of the horrors, you know, that we saw there. But 1930s Germany is a very important analogy because there was an awful lot of people in um, the existing German system 
who enabled what happened next because they thought that, you know, their their own agendas were being furthered by this. They had no idea of how things were going to play out. But they also dismantled their democracy, uh, you know, in power plays or, you know, for economic uh, reasons, social reasons, um, because they just didn't think that it could happen. It couldn't happen here, like you said. So and, I, I, you know, kind of in, uh, in Russia since uh, coming into power in 2000, Putin has kind of rolled back a lot of the advances that were made in democracy using the constitution, using legal means and, you know, the, uh, and the ballot box and just manipulating it uh, on it at every turn. Every democracy has got itself in trouble. I mean, there are books by, you know, uh, Daniel um, uh, Ziblatt and Steve Levitsky at, at Harvard about how, you know, um, democracies are lost, you know, how democracies right. end. Um, you know, this is the, this is a pattern. We are in the same pattern as other countries. We feel that we're exceptional, but unfortunately, we're proving to be unexceptional right now. Although the circumstances of the loss of our democracy will be, you know, our very own, and and, and we haven't seen the storming of a major government building in the United States for for what for centuries. In the last time the right. Capitol came under assault. But this looks like this looked like the storming of the Bastille, yes. or you know the storming of the Winter Palace, you know, in uh, 1917 in, um, in in Russia. I mean, it, it should be shocking to every American, uh, that, you know, a protest getting out of hand like this, the storming of the U.S. Capitol building, as if it was a symbol of repression. Well, um, you've certainly frightened me, um, and and there's a part of me that thinks there's no dr- more dramatic ending to this podcast than what you've just said, but I sort of hate to end on such a um, dismal note, and I'm just, I, I know that in your book you talk about some solutions, and uh, so I'd like to maybe talk about a little bit about how we can move forward from where we're at and make America safe for democracy again, unite the people. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, I mean, this is a time for people to step up. And, you know, Victor, it's definitely time for, you know, your generation, you know, to come forward as well. And, you know, the the, the title of this podcast is Intergenerational Podcast, right? (laughs) We need an intergenerational response because, you know, this is your future that everybody's messing around with here. And, you know, all of us have to put the people, we the people, back into um, our politics. Because although we are a republic with a representational democracy and people are often saying, well, we're a republic more than anything, we have representatives. I don't feel that our representatives are really representing us writ large at the moment. I mean, you don't just represent in a representational democracy the people who voted for you. And every state in the United States tends to be more purple than red or blue. And, you know, I am not a partisan person. I don't feel that I can find my reflection um, in, you know, kind of either the Republican or the Democratic Party. It's not my first point of identity to identify myself politically. I identify myself as an American. And then all the other kinds of things come on board. I'm deeply disturbed that the America that I came to in 1989 now has people identifying themselves, first of all, when I say, hi, who are you? Hi, I'm Bob, I'm a Democrat. Or hi, I'm Jim, I'm a Republican. That's absolutely you know kind of I can't imagine that hi I'm a Republican hi I'm a Democrat on you know those labels you know you would have at a a, a party or something or you know kind of a a mixer I mean this is this is not you know where we should be as you know an advanced um, you know country at this particular point so we have to figure out ways of getting across this not just bridging divides but you know basically getting out there and you know making our voices uh, heard by being politically engaged on issues that matter a lot to us, 
contacting our Congress person and saying, look, you know, you're representing me as well. And and I want you know kind of this to just to stop. Like if if you're you know a Congress person, there's somebody who's buying into the big line of conspiracy. You know, write to them, get in touch with them, say stop. You know, you know, throwing at the democracy way at a time when we need collective action. You know, right now you know we've got um, we've just had the G20 and this this meeting in Glasgow for climate change. This is the 26th meeting. Um, you know, that's been happening on a regular annual basis to get some progress on climate change. You know, I, I, I don't want to say again, we, we said we wouldn't end on a <laughs> dark note. I don't want to say we're doomed here, but we do need to get collective action. We've got things that all of us are going to be affected by. The pandemic has affected us all. Climate change really is going to affect all of us. It already is. And so, you know, how do we get our members of Congress in particular to realise that they're representing us in, in, in this republic? And how do we get our own voices there? And at the back of the book, I actually go through a whole host of things that individuals can do to create opportunity. Because partly, you know, we need to show people that they still have the opportunity to be themselves, to get a good job, to get an education and to kind of, you know, live their best lives in the United States. All of us, we're all in this together. And I do think we can make a lot of difference in the community, um, in, you know, which we're part of, the networks in which we're part of, and it's certainly at the state and local government level. And, and just having this podcast, you know, what you guys are doing now, you know, having people from different generations, different backgrounds talking to each other, having this um, opportunity, you know, to air um, issues and to look at them from different vantage points, that's doing something too. But I just urge people to, you know, when they've listened to the podcast or they've moved away from their screen, go out and physically do something, volunteer for something, especially, you know, kind of for voter registration, yes. you know, kind of, uh, you know, getting out the vote, um, uh, supervising and you know, helping figure out how you can monitor elections. You know, we used to do a lot of that overseas. We need to bring a lot of that, you know, yes. back here. But also, you know, reaching out uh, to different people in um, your community for community service and bringing people from different backgrounds along to it as well. Well, I think you have brought us to a happy place because there's nothing more powerful than giving voice to individuals' concerns and advising people to get out there and take action. Write to your congressmen, right. to your congresswomen, to your senators. They do listen, and not just when you are voting, but they listen as you contact them. So please follow Fiona Hill's advice and read her book. Uh, you will enjoy it, and I'm going to hold up the copy of it again, which says, there is nothing for you here, but ends with finding opportunity in the 21st century. So it ends on a hopeful note, and we thank you so much for being with us today, Fiona. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Jill and Victor. I mean, it's really nice to see you. That's, that's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did and that you will come back, listen again, or watch us on YouTube and follow us so that you can always be informed about the next episode of iGen Politics. Thanks for being here.